0: This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of pediatric ankle fractures from the pediatric section on orthobullets.com. Pediatric ankle fractures are a common injury that includes Salter-Harris type 1 injuries, Salter-Harris type 2 injuries, Salter-Harris type 3 injuries, which include tallow fractures and medial malleolus fractures, and Salter-Harris type 4 injuries, which include triplane fractures as well as medial malleolus fractures. Treatment is typically immobilization if non-displaced or open reduction internal fixation if they're displaced. As far as the epidemiology of these injuries, pediatric ankle fractures account for 25 to 40% of all fysio injuries, and they are the second most common. They also account for 5% of all pediatric fractures. As far as the demographics of these injuries, pediatric ankle fractures are more common in males in a 2 to 1 ratio, and typically occur between 8 to 15 years old. Risk factors include participation in sports as well as an increased BMI. As far as the pathophysiology, the mechanism of injury is typically direct trauma or a twisting injury, for example rotation about a planted foot and ankle. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. Specifically, we'll talk about ficeal considerations as well as the ligaments. As far as ficeal considerations of the ankle, the distal tibial physis and the distal fibular physis are the two important ones to talk about. The distal tibial physis accounts for 35 to 40% of the overall tibial growth and 15 to 20% of overall lower extremity growth. The rate of growth is three to four millimeters per year and growth continues until 14 years in girls and 16 years in boys. Closure occurs during an 18-month transitional period and the pattern of closure occurs in a very predictable pattern that is central first, then anteromedial, then posteromedial, and then lateral. Again, the pattern of closure occurs in a predictable pattern starting with central, then anteromedial, then posteromedial, and then lateral. Moving on to the distal fibular physis, closure occurs 12 to 24 months after the closure of the distal tibial physis. Now let's move on to the ligaments and keep in mind that the origins are distal to the phyces. We'll talk specifically about the medial ligaments, the lateral ligaments, and the syndesmosis ligaments. The medial ligaments include the deltoid ligament, which is divided into two components, the superficial component and the deep component. The superficial component of the deltoid ligament contains the anterior talotibial ligament, the posterior talotibial ligament, the tibionavicular ligament, and the calcaneotibial ligament the deep portion of the deltoid ligament is the primary restraint to lateral displacement of the talus. The lateral ligaments include the anterior talofibular ligament, the calcaneofibular ligament, and the posterior talofibular ligament. Finally, the syndesmosis ligaments include the anterior inferior tibiofibular ligament, the posterior inferior tibiofibular ligament, the inferior transverse ligament, and the interosseous ligament. The anterior inferior tibiofibular ligament extends from the anterior aspect of the lateral distal tibial epiphysis, otherwise known as the chaput tubercle, to the anterior aspect of the distal fibula, otherwise known as the wagstaff tubercle. The anterior inferior tibiofibular ligament plays an important role in transitional fractures, such as tallow fractures or triplane fractures. The posterior inferior tibiofibular ligament extends from the posterior aspect of the lateral distal tibial epiphysis, otherwise known as Volkmann's tubercle, to the posterior aspect of the distal fibula. The inferior transverse ligament extends from the posterior distal fibula across the posterior aspect of the distal tibial articular surface and functions as a posterior labrum of the ankle. The interosseous ligament is continuous with the interosseous membrane and is located between the AITFL and the PITFL. Now let's talk about the classification of pediatric ankle fractures and the ones to know include the Salter-Harris classification and the DS and Tatchgen classification. The Salter-Harris classification is an anatomic classification and is divided into six types. Type 1 injuries account for 15% of pediatric ankle fractures, and type 1 injuries are when the fracture extends through the physis. Type 2 injuries account for 45% of pediatric ankle fractures, and are when the fracture extends through the physis and exits through the metaphysis, forming a Thurston Holland fragment. Type 3 account for 25% of pediatric ankle fractures, and are when the fracture extends through the physis and exits through the epiphysis. Type 3 injuries are seen with medial malleolus fractures and talus fractures, and there's an increased risk of physeal arrest. Salter-Harris type 4 injuries also make up 25% of pediatric ankle fractures, and these fractures involve the physis, metaphysis, and epiphysis. These injuries can occur with lateral malleolus fractures, usually Salter-Harris 1 or 2 injuries. These are seen with medial malleolus shearing injuries and triplane fractures and keep in mind that there is an increased risk of physial arrest in type 4 injuries. Salter-Harris type 5 injuries make up 1% of all pediatric ankle fractures, and these refer to a crush injury to the physis, and these can be difficult to identify on initial presentation. Diagnosis is usually made when growth arrest is seen on follow-up radiographs. And of course, keep in mind that type 5 injuries have an increased risk of physial arrest. Finally, type 6 injuries are rare and refer to a perichondral ring injury and result from an open injury, for example, a lawnmower injury or iatrogenic injury during surgical dissection. The Dias and touchgen classification is patterned off of an adult Hansen classification and this classification system is based on the mechanism of injury. And the types include a supination inversion injury, a supination plantar flexion injury, a supination external rotation injury, a pronation slash eversion external rotation injury, and an axial compression injury. A supination inversion type is divided into two grades. In grade 1 injuries, there is an adduction or inversion force that evolves the distal fibular epiphysis. This can be a saltoharis harris 1 or 2 injury. Grade 1 supination inversion injuries can occasionally be transepiphyseal and rarely occurs with failure of the lateral ligaments. Grade 2 supination inversion injuries is when further inversion leads to a distal tibial fracture, usually a salter hyris 3 or 4, but can be a salter hyris 1 or 2. Occasionally, grade 2 supination inversion injuries can cause fracture through the medial malleolus below the physis. In a supination plantar flexion type injury, the plantar flexion force displaces the tibial epiphysis posteriorly in a salter hyris 1 or 2 pattern. A Thurston-Holland fragment is composed of the posterior tibial metaphysis and displaces posteriorly. A supination plantar flexion injury occurs without a fibular fracture and can be difficult to see on an AP radiograph. A supination external rotation injury is also divided into two grades. Grade 1 is when an external rotation force leads to a distal tibial fracture, which is typically a Salter-Harris II injury. The distal fragment displaces posteriorly, a Thurston-Holland fragment displaces posteromedially, medially, and keep in mind that grade 1 supination external rotation injuries are easily visible on AP radiograph as the fracture line extends proximally and medially. Grade 2 supination external rotation injuries are when further external rotation leads to a low spiral fracture of the fibula that is antero-inferior to posterior superior. Pronation-slash-eversion external rotation injuries are when external rotation force leads to a distal tibial fracture that is Salter-Harris 1 or 2 and a transverse fibula fracture. Occasionally, a pronation-slash-eversion external rotation injury can be a transepiphyseal medial malleolus fracture, which is a Salter-Harris type 2 fracture. In these injuries, the distal tibial fragment displaces laterally, a Thurston-Holland fragment is lateral, or in the posterolateral distal tibial metaphysis. Keep in mind that a pronation slash eversion external rotation injury can be associated with diastasis of the ankle joint. Finally, an axial compression injury leads to a Salter-Harris V injury of the distal tibial physis. This can be difficult to identify on initial presentation. Diagnosis typically is made when the growth arrest is seen on follow-up radiographs. Pediatric ankle fractures present with some common symptoms like pain and inability to bear weight, as well as palpation for focal tenderness. Inspection may reveal ecchymosis and swelling, as well as deformity if the fracture is displaced. As far as focal tenderness, keep in mind that distal fibula ficeal tenderness may represent a non-displaced Salter-Harris-1 injury. As far as imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP, mortis, and a lateral. Optional views include a full-length tibia or proximal tibia to rule out a masonu-type fracture. A CT scan is indicated to assess fracture displacement, which is best obtained post-reduction. It's also indicated to assess articular step-off, as well as preoperative planning. Treatment of pediatric ankle fractures can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management can include a removable walking boot versus non-weight-bearing in a short leg cast for four weeks, as well as closed reduction and non-weight-bearing cast for six weeks. A removable walking boot versus non-weight-bearing short leg cast for four weeks is indicated for a non-displaced isolated distal fibular fracture. Remember that non-displaced is defined as less than 2 mm of displacement. A closed reduction and non-weight-bearing cast for 6 weeks is indicated for a distal fibula fracture that is displaced greater than 2 mm that is a salter hyris 1 or type 2 fracture with acceptable closed reduction. It's also indicated for a distal tibial fracture that is a displaced salter hyris 1 or 2 fracture with acceptable closed reduction that is no varus, less than 10 degrees of valgus, and less than 10 degrees of recurvatum slash procurvatum, and less than 3 millimeters of physeal widening. Operative options for pediatric ankle fractures include a closed reduction percutaneous pinning, as well as open reduction internal fixation. The indications for a closed reduction percutaneous pinning is a displaced distal fibula fracture that is greater than 2 millimeters and is a Salta Harris 1 or 2 fracture with unacceptable closed reduction and greater than 2 years of growth remaining. A closed reduction percutaneous pinning is also indicated for a displaced distal tibia Salta Harris 1 or 2 fracture with unacceptable closed reduction, again that is varus, greater than 10 degrees of valgus, greater than 10 degrees of recurvatum slash procurvatum, or greater than 3 millimeters of ficeal widening, and greater than 2 years of growth remaining. It's also indicated for a displaced Salter-Harris 3 or 4 distal tibia fracture with less than 2 millimeters of displacement following closed reduction. An open reduction internal fixation is indicated for a displaced distal tibia fracture greater than 2 millimeters. This is usually an isolated distal fibula fracture, usually salter hyris 1 or salter hiris 2, with unacceptable closed reduction and less than 2 years of growth remaining. ORIF is also indicated for a displaced salter hiris 1 or salter hiris 2 distal tibia fracture with unacceptable closed reduction. Again, that's varus greater than 10 degrees of valgus, greater than 10 degrees of recurvatum slash procurvatum, and or greater than 3 millimeters of fissile widening, and less than 2 years of growth remaining. ORIF is also indicated for a displaced Salter-Harris 3 or Salter-Harris 4 distal tibia fracture with greater than 2 millimeters of displacement following closed reduction. Now let's go over some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. We'll talk about closed reduction as well as CRPP versus ORIF. Close reduction typically requires adequate sedation and muscle relaxation. As far as the technique, only attempt reduction two times to prevent further fysial injury. Confirm the reduction with the mortis view, and remember that acceptable reduction for the tibia is no varus, less than 10 degrees of valgus, less than 10 degrees of recurvatum slash procurvatum, and or less than 3 millimeters of fysial widening. Postoperatively immobilize for 6 weeks, This can be in a non-weight-bearing short leg cast if there's an isolated distal fibula fracture or non-weight-bearing in a long leg cast if there's a distal tibia fracture. Complications include a failed reduction, which may happen if there's interposed periosteum, tendons, or neurovascular structures. Again, failed reduction may be from an interposed periosteum, tendons, or neurovascular structures. As far as CRPP versus ORIF, Reduction typically involves percutaneous manipulation with K wires that may aid in reduction and open reduction may be required if there's interposed tissue present. As far as instrumentation, trans fixation is best if at all possible. This involves cannulated screws parallel to the physis and this is usually used for tallow and triplane fractures or two parallel epiphyseal screws that are typically used for medial malleolus shear fractures. Another alternative is transphyseal fixation with smooth K-wires. Some complications to be aware of include ankle pain and degeneration, growth arrest, extensor retinacular syndrome, malunion, as well as reflex sympathetic dystrophy. As far as ankle pain and degeneration, there is a high rate of this complication associated with articular step-off greater than 2 millimeters. As far as growth arrest, medial malleolus Salter-Harris 4 fractures have the highest rate of growth disturbance. Risk factors include the degree of the initial displacement, residual physeal displacement of greater than three millimeters, a high energy injury mechanism, and Salter-Harris three as well as Salter-Harris IV fractures. As far as the degree of initial displacement, there's a 15% increased risk of physeal injury for every one millimeter of displacement. A residual physeal displacement of greater than three millimeters can represent periosteum entrapped in the fracture site. As far as types of growth arrest, partial arrests can lead to angular deformity, and complete arrests can result in leg length discrepancy. Again, partial arrests can lead to angular deformity, and complete arrests can result in leg length discrepancy. As far as partial arrests that can lead to angular deformity, distal fibular arrests result in ankle valgus deformity, and medial-distal tibia arrest results in varus deformity. Treatment of an angular deformity can be ficeal bar resection, osteotomy or an ipsilateral fibular epiphysiodesis. Physial bar resection can be done if there's less than 20 degrees of angulation with less than 50% physial involvement and greater than two years of growth remaining. As far as an ipsilateral fibular epiphysiodesis, this can be done when there's a bar of greater than 50% physial involvement in a patient with at least two years of growth, and keep in mind that fibular epiphysiodesis helps prevent varus deformity. Treatment for a leg length discrepancy can be a fysial bar resection or a contralateral epiphysiodesis if the patient is near skeletal maturity with significant expected leg length discrepancy. A fysial bar resection for leg length discrepancy can be done if there's less than 50% fysial involvement and greater than two years of growth remaining. Another complication to be aware of is extensor retinacular syndrome which is typically seen in posteriorly displaced fractures. Malunion can manifest as rotational deformity, anterior angulation or plantar flexion deformity, or a valgus deformity. Rotational deformity can occur after triplane fractures, Salter Harris 1 or Salter Harris II fractures. This usually leads to an increased external foot rotation angle, and treatment is a derotational osteotomy. Anterior angulation or plantar flexion deformity occurs after supination plantar flexion of Salter Harris II fractures finally, valgus deformity occurs after external rotation Salter-Harris II fractures. Reflex sympathetic dystrophy is more common in girls, and treatment options include physical therapy, psychological counseling, drug therapy, and or sympathetic blockade. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, An 8-year-old patient presents with a displaced salter harris II right distal tibia fracture and corresponding fibula fracture while playing football. What has been associated with the greatest risk of premature fissile closure? And the choices are 1. Amount of initial fracture displacement, 2. Number of reduction attempts, 3. Injury mechanism involving football, 4. Residual gap after closed reduction, and 5. Treatment with open reduction and internal fixation. The correct answer to this question is four residual gap after closed reduction. So the patient is presenting with a displaced Salter-Harris type two fracture of the distal tibia. Residual gapping of greater than two millimeters has been associated with increased rates of premature physeal closure. To quickly review, pediatric distal tibia fractures pose a treatment challenge due to the potentially high risk of premature physeal closure, increased residual fracture displacement. High energy mechanisms, like abduction injuries, and medial malleolar fractures are risk factors for premature ficeal closure. An anatomic reduction should be achieved by closed means if possible, but increased residual gapping has been associated with interposed periosteum, which necessitates open reduction. Barmada et al. performed a retrospective review of patients with Salter-Harris 1-4 fractures of the distal tibia. The authors found a significant association with premature closure and a post-reduction gap of greater than 2 mm with no significant association with initial fracture displacement. They recommended open reduction and internal fixation in cases of residual gapping to remove interposed periosteum. Romiller et al. performed a retrospective review of patients with Salter Harris 1 and 2 fractures of the distal tibia. The authors found a significant rate of premature closure with abduction injuries while skateboarding or playing soccer as well as residual fracture displacement following treatment. The authors recommend achieving an anatomic reduction whether that requires open or closed methods. Moving on to the next question, a fibular epiphysiodesis would be indicated in which of the following scenarios? And the choices are 1, a 10-year-old boy with a Salter-Harris-4 distal tibia fracture with greater than 3 millimeters of residual displacement. 2, a 10-year-old girl with a less than 50% fissile bar in the distal tibia 4 months after an ankle fracture. 3, a 13-year-old girl with a less than 50% central fissile bar in the distal tibia 6 months after an ankle fracture. 4. A 15-year-old girl with a 25-degree varus angular deformity of the distal tibia two years after an ankle fracture. And 5. A 13-year-old boy with a greater than 50% physeal bar in the distal tibia five months after an ankle fracture. The correct answer to this question is 5. A 13-year-old boy with a greater than 50% physeal bar in the distal tibia five months after an ankle fracture. So a fibular epiphysiodesis would be indicated in a 13-year-old boy with a greater than 50% physial bar in the distal tibia five months after an ankle fracture. Consideration for a distal tibial epiphysiodesis is warranted as well if the bar is peripheral and could result in an angular deformity. If central, this may not be needed. To quickly review, physial bridges commonly occur after Salter-Harris physeal fractures in early adolescence when the physis is thickest and the cartilage is weakest. Fisial bridges that are small that is less than 25% of the fisial area and central have a better prognosis. Presence of a fisial bridge less than 50% of the fisial area in a patient with at least two years of growth remaining is an indication for fisial bridge resection. The presence of a physeal bar greater than 50% of the physeal area in the distal tibia in a patient with at least two years of growth remaining and an open fibular growth plate can result in significant deformity and lateral ankle impingement, and thus an ipsilateral fibular epiphysiodesis should be considered to prevent lateral impingement. Padeswa et al. reviewed distal tibia and fibula fractures in the pediatric patient. They emphasize that displaced fractures should undergo a gentle reduction with appropriate anesthesia and that multiple reduction attempts should be avoided. Gapping of the physis greater than 3 mm after reduction should raise the suspicion of entrapped periosteum, which increases the risk of premature physial closure. Nanopoulos et al. review the outcomes of physial injuries of the distal tibia. They report on 83 patients with distal tibia fractures, with 60 out of 83 being treated nonoperatively. Varus deformity ranging from 10 to 15 degrees in relation to the normal opposite leg occurred in four cases. Moving on to the next question. An eight-year-old male sustained a Salter-Hiris II distal tibia fracture. After attempted closed reduction, the fracture remains in the same position. What is the most likely etiology of the block to reduction? And the choices are one, periosteum interposed at the compression side of the injury, two, periosteum interposed at the tension side of the injury, three, fracture comminution interposed at the tension side of the injury, four, fracture comminution interposed at the compression side of the injury, and five, unrecognized fracture line. The correct answer to this question is two, periosteum interposed at the tension side of the injury. So periosteum interposed on the tension side of the injury may impede reduction of pediatric ankle fractures. Physeal fractures of the distal tibia are fairly common injuries. Interposition of periosteum and other soft tissues is occasionally responsible for creating a block to reduction in these injuries. The periosteum becomes entrapped at the tension side of the injury. Entrapped periosteum may also lead to premature fysial closure. Entrapped periosteum has been found to produce bone, cartilage, or fibrous tissue within the physis. Barmada et al. performed a retrospective study to determine the incidence and predictors of premature fysial closure after pediatric distal tibial fractures. Out of 92 fractures, 25 were complicated by physeal closure. Salter-Harris 3 and 4, that is medial malleolar type fractures, resulted in the highest percentage of premature physeal closure by fracture type in 38% of patients. They found that if a residual gap was seen on the radiograph, the incidence of premature physeal closure increased to 60%. If no gap was present, the incidence decreased to 17%. All cases treated operatively had interposed periosteum, which the authors believe can lead to a higher incidence of physeal closure. Rommiller et al. performed a review on all patients treated with distal tibial fractures. They had a rate of premature physeal closure of 39.6% in Salter-Harris type 1 or 2 fractures of the distal tibial physis. They found a difference based on the mechanism of injury with pronation abduction type injuries having premature physeal closure nearly 54% of the time. They recommended an anatomic reduction in these injuries to avoid premature physeal closure. Moving on to the next question, when dealing with distal tibia physeal fractures in the pediatric population, which of the following is not a risk factor for premature physeal closure? And the choices are 1. Degree of initial displacement, 2. Periosteum entrapped in the fracture site, 3. Patient age greater than 8 years old, 4. A residual physeal gap of greater than 3 millimeters, And five, Salter-Harris type 3 or 4 injury pattern. The correct answer to this question is three, patient age greater than eight years old. So for pediatric distal tibial fractures, age has not been identified as a specific risk factor for premature fysial closure. To quickly review, premature fysial closure is a known complication of fysial injuries with occurrence after distal tibial fractures reported between eight to 50%. Expectant management of premature physeal closure requires careful follow-up in order to identify the closure and intervene upon the subsequent limb length discrepancies or angular deformities which may arise. All Salter-Harris fracture types are at risk, with a slightly increased risk among types three and four. The degree of initial displacement and post-reduction fracture gap are both associated with increasing risk of premature physeal closure. Age has not specifically been described as a risk factor for premature physeal closure. Wertz et al. reviewed the management of pediatric physeal ankle fractures. They report these injuries should be followed for two years in order to prevent complications related to premature physeal closure. The clinician should look for Harris growth arrest lines to determine the resumption of normal growth as asymmetry within the line is suggestive of asymmetric physeal closure which can result in angular deformity. Management involves guided growth, angular deformity correction, and potentially physeal bar resection. Leary et al. reviewed 124 distal tibial physeal fractures. The authors found a rate of premature physeal closure of 12.1%. They identified an increasing risk of premature physeal closure depends on the degree of initial displacement with an increasing risk of 15% for each millimeter of displacement. Moving on to the next question. A six-year-old girl sustains an ankle injury after falling on rollerblades. An AP radiograph shows a Salter-Harris type 4 injury of the ankle involving both the growth plate and the articular surface of the ankle. Treatment should consist of which of the following, and the choices are 1. Closed manipulation and a long leg cast, 2. Closed manipulation and a short leg cast, 3. Long leg cast without manipulation, 4. Open reduction and internal fixation with a screw crossing the growth plate, and 5. Open reduction and internal fixation with fixation parallel to the physis. The correct answer to this question is five, open reduction and internal fixation with fixation parallel to the physis. So the child in the question stem has a salter harris type 4 injury involving both the growth plate and the articular surface of the ankle. This injury pattern has a high risk of physial arrest. Therefore, open reduction and internal fixation is indicated to realign the physis and joint surface. The best method of fixation to avoid growth arrest is one that does not cross the physis. This is usually achieved by an epiphyseal screw or pins parallel to the physis. If the metaphyseal fragment were large enough, a transverse metaphyseal screw could be used. The incidence of growth arrest following physial ankle injuries is high and long-term follow-up is indicated. And moving on to the final question, a 7-year-old female injures her foot while rollerblading. She has mild swelling over the ankle with no neurovascular deficit and soft compartments throughout the lower extremity. radiographs demonstrates anterior widening of the distal tibial physis, and there is also widening of the medial aspect of the distal tibial physis. Which of the following sequelae is most commonly associated with this injury? And the choices are 1. Increased external foot progression angle, 2. Increased internal foot progression angle, 3. Aquinas contracture, 4. Avascular necrosis, and 5. Leg compartment syndrome. The correct answer to this question is 1. Increased external foot progression angle. So the images described in the question stem show a distal tibial fissial fracture which may be associated with malrotation of the foot. Distal tibial injuries commonly occur in the setting of a twisting injury. Although the foot may appear grossly normal and the radiographs show only mild fissial widening, rotational deformity may exist. Healing in this rotated position can lead to changes in foot progression angle, more often resulting in increased external rotation of the foot. The recommended treatment is to evaluate the child for rotational deformity at the time of injury and then perform a closed reduction followed by bent knee long leg casting. Fan et al. reviewed the cases of 23 children with either a Salter-Harris type 1 or type 2 fracture of the distal tibia. 14 of 23 children had increased external foot progression angle in both feet with significantly more external rotation on the injured side. No patient developed an internal rotation deformity. Brooke et al. present a case report of a 7-year-old child who sustained an external rotation injury that showed only fissile widening on radiographs. Interestingly, this was associated with a 45-degree external rotation deformity of the foot-slash-ankle that reduced following close reduction. That's all for this review about pediatric ankle fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that this podcast is designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts.